The scripture reading for today comes from Hebrews eleven seven and Genesis six eleven through twenty two and nine eight through thirteen. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Genesis six. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish, establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated. And uh, good morning again, and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, the four Sundays leading up to the birth of Jesus which makes Advent a season all about anticipation. It's about waiting, it's about preparation, it's about hope. And all of these are centered around the arrival of Jesus. That's what Advent means, arrival. And for Advent this year, uh, we aren't starting a new sermon series exactly. We're still in Hebrews 11, we're still doing by faith, 
Uh, because as I joked earlier in the sermon series, this whole by faith series could really be thought of as one giant Advent series where we've been looking at all these people who came before Jesus who left us longing for Jesus to finally arrive. But now that we're in the season of Advent, what we're going to do is go back in redemptive history, go back in chapter in Hebrews chapter 11 and talk about some of the major Old Testament saints that we've missed so far. Because if you were following along closely, you may have noticed that there were some verses and some people in Hebrews 11 that we skipped. And so we're going to go back and we're going to hit Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, the four people in the Old Testament that God made a covenant with. As a kind of comparison with last year, our Advent sermon series last year was called The Mothers of Jesus. You could think of this Advent series as The Fathers of Jesus. And so today, we're going to start with Noah. And uh, because the kids are taking a break from their classes today, I'm going to begin my sermon by just reading a brief story from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And so, kids, just like last time, if you're willing, I'd love to just meet you down here by this chair. All right. This is a story about Noah. Time passed, and many people filled the earth. Everyone everywhere had forgotten about God and were only doing bad things all the time. God's heart was filled with pain when he saw what had happened to the world he loved. Everywhere was disease and death and destruction, the things that God hates most. Now Noah was God's friend, which was odd in those days because no one else was God's friend. Noah listened to God. He talked to God. He just loved being with God, like you do with your friends. Noah, God said, things have gone wrong. People have filled my world with hate instead of love. They are destroying themselves and each other and my world. I must stop them. First, we'll build an ark. Do you guys know how to build an ark? Well, neither did Noah. Luckily, God knew, and he told Noah how to build the ark. See, there's some instructions. It looks a lot like that. A storm is coming, God told Noah, but I will rescue you. I promise. I'll send the animals to you, ones that creep and crawl and slither and slime and gallop and hop and bound and climb. And don't forget to pack everyone's food. The storm was going to wash away all the hate and sadness. Yeah, there's a lizard right there. The storm was going to wash away all the hate and sadness and everything that had gone wrong and make the world clean again. God had thought up a way to keep Noah safe, but Noah would have to trust God and do exactly what God told him. And so Noah built an ark, which is a very large boat. Noah's neighbors came out to watch and point and laugh because they didn't believe Noah about the boat or the storm or needing to be rescued. And Noah must have looked rather silly. His boat was in the desert, and the desert was nowhere near the sea, and there wasn't even a cloud in the sky. Why would anyone need an umbrella, let alone a boat? 
But Noah didn't mind so much what other people thought. He minded what God thought. So he just did what God told him to do. When the ark was ready, God said, All aboard! And Noah's family and all the animals climbed inside. Then God shut the door. Yeah, there's a lot of animals. (laughs) It is big. Then it started to rain. For minutes that joined up into hours, that joined up into days, that joined up into weeks and weeks. And the rain joined up into puddles, that joined up into rivers, that joined up into lakes, that joined up into a flood that covered the whole world. Their boat that had once seemed so big suddenly seemed very small. But in the middle of the huge storm, in the crashing waves, and all the thunder and lightning through it all, God was with them, and God kept them safe for 40 long days and 40 long nights. Finally, the rain stopped, the sun came out, and Noah threw open all the windows. Hooray, everyone shouted. Noah sent his dove out to explore, and it wasn't long before she brought him back a fresh olive leaf. Everyone knew exactly what that meant. She had found a tree and land. The water was going down. At last, the boat landed quite suddenly on top of a great mountain. As soon as it was safe, God said, out you come. And so they did, everyone skipping and dancing onto dry land. The first thing Noah did was to thank God for rescuing them, just as he had promised. The first thing that God did was make another promise. I won't ever destroy the world again. And like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrow at the end of a great battle, God said, see, I have hung up my bow in the clouds. And there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again. But God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan, a plan not to destroy the world, a plan to rescue it, a plan to one day send his own son, the rescuer. Yeah, you see that rainbow? All right, guys, you did a good job listening to that story. You can go back to your parents and make sure that they pay attention. Answer any questions they have. Well, now, as uh, the rest of us continue to ponder Noah's story, we will have three points. Corruption, the ark, and the covenant. And so let's begin with our first point, corruption. Uh, One week ago, as I'm sure many of you are aware... A man in Waukesha, Wisconsin, drove his red SUV through a Christmas parade, killing six people and injuring dozens more, a large number of them belonging to the most vulnerable of age groups. The man, it seems, went on the rampage following some sort of domestic dispute, which he drove away from completely out of control of his mental and emotional state, And the pain, the frustration, the anger, whatever he was feeling, he took out on innocent people, intentionally mowing down participants in the parade. It was 
awful. Why does stuff like this happen? Why does it seem to happen so often? I mean, mass killings seem to happen with such regularity that one week later, that Waukesha incident is essentially already forgotten. It's old news, and pretty soon we'll have a new tragedy in our headlines. Why does stuff like this happen? What is wrong with the world? Well, obviously, there are many ways to answer that question, but biblically speaking, the answer to the question, why, what is wrong with the world, uh, biblically speaking, the answer is corruption. The world and those who inhabit it have been corrupted. Just like it was in Noah's day, it's still like that today. Our world is filled with corruption. And that's what our passage in Genesis 6, 11 through 12 says about Noah's day. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. And to get an idea of just how bad it was, listen to what it says just a few verses earlier than our Genesis 6 passage. This is from Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You notice that strong language. Every intention, every single one of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually, all the time. Every intention, only evil, all the time. You can imagine then how a man intentionally runs over people in a parade if the thoughts of his heart are continually evil all the time. This world and those who inhabit it have been corrupted. You know, and you know, think about corruption in a different context. Think about what happens when a computer file becomes corrupted. Have you ever had that happen? Ever had a pop-up on your computer? You know, most of what's supposed to be in the file might actually be there, but because it's been corrupted, it's not whole. And the computer either can't read all of it, or sometimes file corruption means that it can't read the file at all. It can't read any of it. And so the file doesn't work how it's supposed to work. It may not work at all. Or think of a vinyl record and a turntable. You know, it's supposed to turn at a consistent speed. The record is supposed to be perfectly level. There shouldn't be any dust accumulating on the needle. But if, uh, if the vinyl record or the turntable gets corrupted, you know, say that the record begins to warp, so that the record is wavy, or if the needle accumulates too much dust, or if the speed of the turntable is inconsistent, then when the record plays, it won't sound right. It'll get high and then low, or it'll crackle, or it'll skip, because it's been corrupted somehow. The music won't sound the way it's supposed to sound. That's what corruption means for the world and for humanity. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And, you know, interestingly, after the flood in Noah's story, even though God just cleansed the earth, does that end all corruption? No. Mankind is still corrupted. 
There's actually two things in the Genesis narrative that tell us that. Uh, Genesis 8.21, after the flood subsides, God repeats what he said before the flood. He says, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's still evil. The flood didn't change that. And then second, shortly after the flood subsides, God also sets punishments for those who shed blood. This is in Genesis 9. God sets punishments for those who murder, which means that God expects that there will still be murder even after the flood. And so things are still corrupted. Things are still not the way they're supposed to be after the flood and today. Which means that we are not the way we are supposed to be. You are not the way that you were supposed to be. Everyone you know is not the way they are supposed to be. We have been corrupted. We still live with that corruption. Now, that doesn't mean that we are all as corrupted as we possibly could be. It doesn't mean that nothing is ever the way it's supposed to be, ever. You know, for example... I have a vinyl record that is warped. If you look at it, it's wavy. You can tell, but it still plays fine. It's not as warped as it possibly could be. It's not so warped that it can't still play songs just fine. You know, in, in a similar way, mercifully, in God's grace, especially if you are in Christ, you are not as corrupted as you could be. You know, For one, God sanctifies you so that you are less and less corrupted than you used to be. God has begun making you whole again. And even in God's common grace, those who do not believe, do not, those who do not believe don't necessarily experience absolute corruption. Although the most important thing about a person, their relationship with God, is obviously corrupted and not the way it's supposed to be. But all this to say, whatever the case may be, we all, to some degree or another, are corrupted. And we live among other people who, to some degree or another, are also corrupted. Which guarantees that two things will happen in your life. One, you will be sinned against. Two, you will sin against others. You will be sinned against. You have been sinned against. And you will sin against others. You have sinned against others. These two truths are guaranteed in the corrupted world that we inhabit among corrupted people. And so how should we live in light of that? How should we live in light of these two truths that we have been sinned against and we will sin against others? Well, one... You need to be prepared to forgive. You should not be surprised that you will need to forgive others in this life because everyone you know is corrupted. And at one point or another, because they are corrupted, they will sin against you. And so don't be surprised when you're in a situation where you need to forgive. But second, you will need to ask for forgiveness in this life. You will need to repent. You will need to apologize you'll need to ask for forgiveness because you have been corrupted, because you are not the way you're supposed to be. And so at one point or another, you will sin against others. And so don't be surprised when you're in a situation where you need to ask for forgiveness. Third, you know, as it relates to your mental and emotional health, 
You need to do the nuanced work of considering how something you're going through is influenced by both these truths. You've been sinned against, and you are a sinner. Those are both true statements. But what can happen in you know, the world of mental health and counseling and therapy is that different philosophies can tend to swing toward one pole or the other. There can be a more postmodern, secular approach that tends to only emphasize that you've been sinned against. Although obviously, they probably wouldn't use the word sin, but essentially, you're always the victim. Your problems flow from how you've been victimized. That's one pole. But there's another pole, and this can tend to come out in more fundamentalist Christian approaches to these disciplines. And that can tend to only emphasize the fact that you're a sinner. You've sinned. You're a sinner. And all your problems flow from that. But both of these poles are overly simplistic. The best counseling, the best therapy, the best emotional health practices, the best mental health practices take account for the nuance of a corrupted world. You've both been sinned against and you are a sinner. You need to factor both of these when working through your mental and emotional health, either with the help of a professional or on your own. You've been sinned against and you're a sinner. And then finally, if the world has been corrupted, if everyone has been corrupted, if we've all been sinned against, if we've all sinned against others, it's appropriate to be sad. It's appropriate to lament. You know, I, I truly think that there is such a thing as a healthy depression for Christians. It's not without hope. Scripture says that we mourn, but not as those without hope. But there's a, so there's a Christian way to do this, but we have to be honest. The world can be depressing. And so if you look out at all that is going on and feel a little bit depressed sometimes, that makes perfect sense. Not at absolutely every moment, not at all times, but some of the time. Even a lot of the time. A healthy level of depression will make some sense. Sadness makes some sense. Lament makes some sense. The world and all those who live in it have been corrupted. But thankfully, as the hymn, This is My Father's World, puts it, This is my Father's world, and let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. And because he is the ruler, he has not left us without hope. He has provided hope. He has provided salvation in the midst of a corrupted world. And that takes us to our second point, the ark. Right before my family left on vacation a couple weeks ago, we thought it would be wise to make a couple copies of our vaccination cards and our daughter's birth certificate to take with us. And so I got our home printer out to do that. And while I was copying these items, there was a paper jam. Now, mind you, this is not the first problem I have had with this printer. It barely gets the things done I need it to. It has all sorts of problems. It needs all sorts of sorts of maintenance. Every intention of the thought of this printer's heart is only evil continually. I hate this printer. And then this jam happened. And I could not clear the paper jam. I unplugged it. I unscrewed parts of it. I turned it upside down every which way. Could not clear the jam. 
And so eventually, you know, I just went office space on it, grabbed a printer and a baseball bat and went off into a nearby field. I'm kidding, of course, but uh, let's just say the printer is no longer a part of my life anymore. It never worked the way it was supposed to, and now it doesn't work at all. Now, that's a very human way of dealing with things that don't work the way they're supposed to work. But thankfully, God's ways are higher than our ways. When God sees a world that is corrupted and not working the way it's supposed to, he doesn't just annihilate everything. He doesn't just destroy everything. He doesn't take a baseball bat to it. He does something much more surgical, much more redemptive. He cleanses the world. He saves a remnant of its inhabitants. He cleanses the earth of its corruption, and he saves a remnant of corrupted people. And he does this by turning to Noah. Right before a passage in Genesis 6, 8, it says that Noah found favor in the Lord's eyes. And so God tells Noah that he's going to make an end of all flesh on the earth. He's going to wipe everyone out. He's going to do so by bringing a great flood upon the earth. Everything that has breath of life under heaven will be destroyed and die because of this great flood. At this point, you might be thinking, that sounds a lot like you taking a bat to a printer, allegedly taking a baseball bat to a printer. I thought you said God's ways were different than our ways. Well, here's the difference. God is not actually going to end all life with the flood. He is going to save some life through the flood. That's where Noah comes in. God instructs Noah to build a massive ark, a big boat. And Noah is to bring his sons and his wife and his sons' wives and two of every animal into the ark. You know the story, I'm sure. God isn't actually going to wipe out all life. He's going to save some life. He's going to preserve some life so that they can start again. And he isn't going to destroy the earth. He isn't going to annihilate the creation. He's going to cleanse it with a flood. And Noah and the ark will play a central role in all this. The ark is going to be the means by which God preserves life. The ark is going to be the means of salvation for life on earth. And this raises all sorts of questions in the Noah story. Will Noah build the ark as God has said? Will Noah even get in the ark after he builds it? Will Noah bring everyone and all the animals that he's supposed to into the ark so that they can be saved? You know, Noah is in this situation where he's going to have to exercise faith to experience salvation. You know, building an ark and getting into it is going to require faith. And so we can look at Noah's faith as a diagnostic for our own. You know, so one test of Noah's faith was whether he would trust the means of salvation that God provided, the ark. You know, God says there, there's going to be a flood, but if you build an ark with the following instructions and then get into that ark, you will be saved. The flood won't wipe you out. And so Noah could either believe God or not here. He could believe God or not about the flood. He needed to totally trust God to be saved. You know, even if he believed God about the flood, that wouldn't be enough. He had to believe God about the saving power of the ark also. You could imagine Noah saying, 
Well, actually, I think that there's a better way to survive a flood without the hassle of building an ark. You know, we're just going to climb really high in these trees and live there for a while or whatever else. But God didn't leave the means of salvation up to Noah and his creativity. God told Noah exactly what he needed to do to be saved from the flood. And he told him what needed to be done to save others as well. And so Noah would need to exercise faith to believe God to, about, both doing, about both what was going to happen and doing what God said to avoid being wiped out by what was going to happen. And it's the same for us and our salvation. You know, Scripture is clear. The wages of sin is death. Eternal condemnation, God's wrath, separation from God and his love forever. That's our pending flood. But you can be saved by grace through faith, not by works. And so you should trust God and his means of salvation. We aren't saved by being more good than bad. We aren't saved by good works. We aren't saved because our heart was in the right place. We aren't saved because we tried really hard. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith in Jesus' death for the forgiveness of sins. And so believe in the means of salvation that God has provided and revealed to us. But another test of Noah's faith was his response to public perception. You know, people would see Noah building an ark, and they would ask him, why? Why are you building that ark, Noah? And he would say, God's going to flood the earth, and only those who are in the ark will survive. You can imagine people would laugh at him and say, you're crazy, man. That's not going to happen. There's not going to be a flood in the middle of the desert. A similar sort of thing happens to us, right? That's, that's why we're scared to share our faith. That's why we sometimes prefer it if people don't find out that we're Christians, right? Because a lot of people don't believe that there's a coming flood that will wipe out everyone not on the ark, metaphorically speaking. And so if we were to evangelize, if we were to build our ark or metaphorically in the public eye, they might make fun of us. They might look down on us. They might pity us. They might do something much, much worse than those things. So we might be tempted not to exercise our faith in some realms of life for fear of public perception. I love what the Jesus Storbuck Bible said about it. You know, Noah didn't mind what people thought. He minded what God thought. And so what does Noah do? I mean, you know, he's wondering, what if God doesn't send the flood after all? Have I wasted my life? Will I look like a fool? Will everyone tell me we told you so? What if God doesn't preserve us in the ark? What does Noah do? Very simple summary, Genesis 6.22 at the end of our passage, or at the end of chapter 6 of our passage. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Hebrews eleven seven picks up on this. By faith, being warned of by being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Noah did it. Noah minded God more than he minded those around him. By faith, Noah believed God and did what God said. He believed the flood was coming. He believed the ark that he built would save him from it. He got onto the ark. He got his family onto the ark. He got the animals onto the ark. By faith, 
Noah believed God and simply did what he said. And so what did God do? How did God respond to Noah's faith? He sent the rain. He vindicated Noah. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The earth flooded, and with that flood, God cleansed the earth from all wickedness. And the ark filled with Noah's family and the animals floated on top of the floodwaters for months, and they were saved from drowning. But of course, they weren't fully saved yet, right? You know, if the waters never cleared and dry land never appeared again, they would still die eventually on that ark. They would eventually run out of food. And so they weren't saved yet just because it flooded. There's an important verse in this story. It wasn't in our scripture reading, but in Genesis 8, verse 1, it says this. Well, they're out in the ark floating on top of the floodwaters. Genesis 8, 1 says, But God remembered Noah. Everyone's floating around wondering what's going to happen, but God remembered Noah. And so he made the water subside, and the ark came to rest on a mountain, and Noah started sending birds out to see if water had dried up, and he kept sending them and sending them and sending them, and they kept coming back and coming back and coming back until one day he sent one out, and it did not return to the ark. And that's how they knew that the waters were dried up from the earth. God had remembered Noah. He hadn't left him to perish on the ark. God had remembered Noah, just like God remembers you. A couple sermons ago, I talked about uh, how remembering God is this key part of growing in our faith. You know, remembering what God has done for you. Exodus Israelites were told to remember that God brought them out of the Exodus. We need to remember what God has done for us as well. And we struggle to remember. We're forgetful, and that forgetfulness can be a root of all sorts of sins in our life. But the flip side of the equation is that even when you are forgetful, even when you don't remember God, he always remembers you. You Even when we don't remember our promises to God, you know, God, I promise I'll never do that again. Even when we don't remember our promises to God, God always remembers his promises to you. God remembers you. Even when it feels like nobody else has been remembering you lately, God remembers you. God remembers the promises that he has made to you. That takes us to our final point, the covenant. This will be sort of brief. Does anyone remember that uh, double rainbow video? It was like the original viral YouTube video. This guy out in nature just losing his mind over a double rainbow and capturing a low-quality video of it. Check it out if you've never seen it before. In our passage, a rainbow also plays a significant role. Literally, it's the sign of the covenant that God makes with Noah. A rainbow. The sign of of the covenant. And God talks about this covenant two times in our passage. In Genesis 6, 18 through 19, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. 
And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. So that's Noah's role in the covenant, to build the ark and bring everyone on. And then God mentions the covenant again after the flood. That was before the flood. This is after the flood in Genesis 9, verses 11 through 13. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. That's what God's going to do. That's what God promises. That's the promise that he's never going to forget. That he will never destroy all flesh again. He will never destroy all the living, all that lives on the earth again. He will never flood the earth again. That's the covenant with Noah and every living creature with him that God makes. All future generations, even the earth itself, will be protected. God will never flood the earth again. But of course, we know that human corruption still continues after the flood. But now, because of God's covenant with Noah, with the earth, he will never treat the earth with the same contempt again. He has promised not to. And that doesn't mean that the earth is no longer corrupt. It just means that God is not going to treat the earth as if it's corrupt. Because God flooded the earth once, cleansed it, made a covenant with it. And from now on, he will not treat the earth as it deserves. He will not treat those who inhabit the earth as they deserve. Instead, there's going to be a certain level of grace, a certain level of blessing that the earth will enjoy from then on. Because in the flood, you could say the earth has now been baptized. And everyone and everything that comes after Noah... All future generations will reap the blessings of this worldwide baptism. They're going to reap the blessing of God's promise to Noah. They're going to reap the grace of God's covenant with Noah. And the sign of this covenant is going to be a rainbow. God says that he has set his bow in the cloud, and it is a sign of the covenant between him and the earth. The rainbow. And so why the rainbow. What's the big deal about the rainbow? Why is the rainbow the sign of the covenant? What you need to understand about God mentioning his bow is that a bow is a symbol of warfare. It's a weapon, you know, bow and arrow. And the rainbow is shaped just like the weapon. And so God says the rainbow is a sign of the covenant with Noah because God is hanging up his bow. Before the flood, God went to war. God went to battle. God took his bow, and he poured out his wrath on all the earth, but saved a remnant on the ark. Now, God says he's hanging up his bow. He's not going to have a posture of wrath toward the earth anymore. He's going to have a posture of grace. He's going to have a posture of patience. Even though humanity is still corrupt, even though humanity is still evil, Even though we're still not the way we're supposed to be, God has promised not to wipe out the earth and those who dwell upon it again. He's hanging up his bow. 
So if you're in the covenant, if you're in Christ, then he's never going to bring his bow against you ever again. You are totally safe from his wrath. And if you're not in the covenant, you don't reap the full benefits of it. You're not guaranteed safety from his wrath forever, but you still do reap some benefits from the covenant. God has given you time. Instead of annihilating you the first moment you showed yourself to be unrighteous, God has chosen to be patient with you. He's given you time so that you could hear the gospel message, so that you could respond to it, so that you could be grafted into God's covenant people. You don't have to stay outside the covenant. You can come in. You could look at a future rainbow and know that the bow is always going to remain hung up for you. Because even though God hung up the bow for Noah, even though God hung up the bow for us, do you know who God did not hang up the bow for? For Jesus. On the cross, his son, Jesus, was crucified. God's bow was pointed at Jesus. God's wrath poured out on Jesus, and he endured it for you. He absorbed every last drop of God's wrath so that you could know that God will never point his bow at you again. And so now, all who rest upon Jesus for the forgiveness of sins are like Noah and his family who walked on the ark. Like the ark shielded them from the flood, Jesus shields you from the wrath you deserve. And so the rainbow is the sign of the covenant with Noah. But next time you see a rainbow, you can think of God hanging up his bow toward you. You could think of how God's bow is not pointed at you anymore. God's bow is not pointed at the earth anymore. Instead, God's bow is pointed at heaven. His bow is pointed at himself. His bow is pointed at Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Noah. The story of the flood, the story of the ark, Noah and all creation is a story that promises that Jesus is coming. God is not going to point his bow at those who are in his covenant. Instead, he's pointed the bow at himself. So Noah's story is a story of longing for the coming of the one who would bear God's wrath so that we wouldn't and so that our corruption could be healed in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you admitting our corrupted state. We are not the way we are supposed to be. But we're so thankful, Lord, that you have sent a proverbial ark in your son who shields us from the flood of your wrath. And Father, we praise you and thank you for the promises of your covenant that you will always remember. Father, so much of life we live uncertain if people will remember their promises, failing ourselves to remember our promises, but your covenant is sure. You remember your promises. You remember us. And so, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, let those truths sink into our hearts and change us. Thank you, and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.